Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend. As always, this is the host and founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest is multi-table tournament crusher Brian Paris. Brian has over $12 million in online caches, was the second human in poker history to crack the $10 million mark, and has been crushing the poker tournament scene for the last 14 years. Brian was incredibly laid back and easy to talk to. It's quite apparent why he's racked up more than 35,000 followers on Twitch and had hundreds of viewers from day one of streaming. In today's episode, you'll learn a clever and effective tactic to make sure you have an edge when you're moving up stakes, why the thought experiment, the prisoner's dilemma, means really bad things for the future of online and live poker, why the folks in the USA who thrive in this day and age of online poker are built to last, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the great Brian Paris. Brian, welcome to the show, sir. How you doing? Uh, great. How you been? I'm doing very well. It's good to yeah. have you. Where are you located at right now? Uh, I'm in Harwin, which is right near Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Very nice. A lot of online poker options in Amsterdam. Oh, uh, yeah. All the sites are available here. It's, uh, that, that's the original reason we moved here is for online poker access. But, you know, there, there are other great reasons to be here as well. But, yeah, it's a, it's a good place to be for now for online. I could think of a couple great reasons. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so let's start this show off by telling me the story of how you started playing cards. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've always been a gamer of sort, you know, growing up. I, I played a lot of Magic when I was, I'm 35 now, so I guess uh, the game was invented when I was like seven or eight. And, you know, I got into it pretty early and I played that a ton growing up all through high school. And then uh, my senior year of high school, some of my friends started a home game for poker. This was 2002. And so we played a bunch of weird variants. We played like baseball and Chicago and stuff like that. Um, and we, we played a little bit of Nolan Hill, you know, because it was in the first, the moneymaker boom was like just kicking off like right after that. But that was my first experiences in this home game with all my friends. I was the second best performing player in the game. One guy won all the money. Uh, he didn't actually wind up going pro though. And then I, I was like, even, I was like the second best player and everyone else was just getting crushed. But then, uh, so I went off to college and I was playing for fun, you know, while going to school, I was playing for fun, but also I was, I was winning because it was pretty easy back then. And so I guess I was just kind of in the perfect time and place. Like I turned 18 the year Moneymaker won the World Series. So I was just like perfectly situated to jump right into online poker from its, like its boom phase and just kind of go with it from there. What was so appealing about the game back then that made you want to invest so much time and energy into playing cards? Well, just the fact that I like, I mean, I, I already enjoyed card games, you know, now, now there here is one that I could play and make money. And it's like, holy shit, you know, I can play online. I can play a card game online and I can make money. It's like this, everything I always wanted to do. It was, it was just really perfect for me. So I, I, I not very naturally gravitated towards it. And when did you start seeing some success? Like when did it turn into a viable thing you felt you could do? Um, so, I mean, it didn't take that long. Like, so I was a freshman in college. I had my first 8K MTT score, uh, like nine months into my freshman year. 
before that I had some smaller scores and stuff, but uh, I, I was always consistently making money to, you know, to pay the bills and pay my rent and whatever when I was going through college. So I guess the, the first time I thought I could really go pro was after I graduated. You know, I, I worked a real job for like maybe six weeks, but I was, I was still playing on weekends and, you know, I was making more money on the weekends than I made at the job. And I want a package to the PCA with uh, all expenses paid. And I, I didn't have the vacation time or whatever. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just quit. You know, and I'll just try to play poker for a while. And if, if it doesn't work out, I'll just get all this, you know, apply for a job again. And it, it worked out. So what was the so, job? What was uh, your first job? It was this, this sort of like financial, like vulture type company where they would like call around these smaller companies and make offers to buy them out. I would like when my, I was employed basically, I would basically cold call people and ask them for like their CEO's contact info. And half the time they'd be like, who the fuck are you? Like, why are you asking about this? Like, what are you talking about? And it, was, it, was, it was not the most fun job. I'm sure I could have worked my way up and done some sort of, you know, finance, mergers and acquisitions type shit. But it, it's, I, I never really like fit in naturally to like an office lifestyle, I guess. I've always been very individually minded. So you quit your job, you start playing poker. What did your life look like? back then like what was your aspiration as a professional card player so i i was just just wanted that one big score i guess i mean i mean i wanted to do it professionally for a while i wanted to travel i wanted to go to, to big tournaments and everything and so my, my early years playing mpts were always spent looking for that one like score to sort of kickstart the bankroll but even though i never had a score above maybe 30k until like three or four years into my career I still managed to, uh, you know, string together enough like 10K scores to keep traveling. And, you know, I, I was uh, with my fiance at the time and we met while traveling. We met while studying abroad at Cambridge. So travel was always sort of a, an integral part of our relationship. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to be able to, to fund that sort of like traveling poker player lifestyle with, with the game from an early from an early time. She was cool. She was cool with the online poker. Yeah, we were both young. You know, I met her, I was 21, she was 20. And, you know, I, I never like really had, we, I never really had to work like a real job for a prolonged period of time. So I guess we never experienced like normal working adult life. So we didn't really have the like risk uh, assessment properly baked into our, <laughs> to our reality at that time, but it worked out just fine anyway. So, you know, I, I guess basically because I was able to be successful from it from the get go and I've never really had any problems with like covering expenses and giving us a nice lifestyle. It's never really been an issue for us. So tell me when you think about pain, in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Probably Black Friday. That was rough. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, so I had um, the first three and a half months of 2011 were the best of my career by far. I was just crushing. I was up like 350K in four months or something. I had a stretch. I remember documenting it pretty extensively where I cashed 10K or more 14 days in a row. Or it was 13 out of 14 days. It was during that full tilt, like double guarantee week or whatever. So I was just crushing. And then... I had a lot of money on full tilt. I had like uh, 200K there or something. And they dropped the hammer on Black Friday and all my full tilt money got frozen. And so I think that was really the first time when I, I went from just like crushing to just like busto in the span of, you know, a month or something through really no fault of my own. I mean, I didn't properly risk manage. Like I had other money I should have been more careful with, but I always just sort of assumed I was getting the tilt money within a reasonable time span. So I think that was by far the hardest part of my career, the biggest setback. Like I went from having just this massive bankroll and being on top of the poker world to just like nothing in the span of a couple of months. And it was, it was very difficult to, to sort of motivate myself to rebuild from there. Do you remember where you were at when you got the Black Friday news? Yeah, yeah. I was in my house, um, my apartment in uh, Southern California, like Laguna Niguel, which is it's in Orange County. Um, and I remember hearing it and I was like, oh, well, 
I, I thought like, I mean, obviously that's like really bad news, but we didn't, we didn't know like the extent of just how bad it would be. You know, we thought maybe they'd shut down for a little bit and then come back or, you know, we thought they'd shut down, but at least we get paid. So I remember my plan at the time, I was like, well, that sucks obviously, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay here. I'm going to play the world series of poker, which I played every summer and then I'll relocate to like Canada or whatever. So I just sort of assumed that I'd be able to relocate my way out of it. And, um, you know, I, I did relocate, but I didn't get the full tilt money back for like three more years. When did the full tilt money come back? Was it with, with when Stars bought full tilt? Yeah, Stars bought them out or whatever, and they did the settlement, and then they paid out all the balances. I think it was in like mid twenty fourteen when I got paid. Yeah, because UB Absolute Poker they paid out eventually, but it was like I still haven't got paid from them. Uh, they they owe me like fifteen k or something. I still haven't paid that. Oh, there you. There was an opportunity. I mean, like, I, I filled out the form and everything, and I've asked them that they like they they're holding it for some reason. I don't know. Really. Wow, that's interesting. That actually reminds me. I should I should email them again. It's been a little bit. <laughs> I think it was like two or three years ago back whenever you could apply. Oh, and... I definitely applied right away. I remember someone came to Twitch chat and was like, oh, shit, UB's paying. I was like, no way. How, how is that possible? I mean, I, I just wrote that money off forever ago. You know, I never thought I'd see that. And then you know, I filled out the whole thing. And just uh, they have my file, report on file. They just haven't paid me yet. I remember. I mean, it was blood on the streets. I remember there was a UB reg who I assume was plugged in to the corporation, whoever even the corporation of ultimate bet was. Um, and he was like buying up people's account balances at like 40 cents on the dollar. Like (laughs) it was just, it, it was a very weird time to be a poker player. I remember having many offers on my full tilt account and contemplating them very deeply, you know, 80 cents on the dollar, 85 cents. I'm glad I didn't, but you know, I, I was very tempting. For sure. And maybe if you could have gotten paid immediately, it would have been worth it. I didn't even worth it, yeah, to, to help me rebuild faster. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that it was really hard to get back in there, to get back in the arena. Can you tell me about going through that and what led you to eventually reinvesting yourself full-time in a poker? It wasn't, I mean, it, it wasn't so much hard emotionally. It was more just like my game got fucked up during the off time. Because like when I when I was when everything was going before Black Friday, I was just firing out on cylinders. I, I was really on top of stuff. And then, you know, when I came back, it was hard. Like I, I was able to sell action on the two plus two marketplace pretty easily because of my situation. You know, it was like the perfect situation to sell action, right? It's like I'm busto, but it's through no fault of my own. Like I made all this money, I was really good. So like I had no problem selling action. When you say bust, oh, like what were you like legitimately very close to? Yeah, I was. Drug? I was like all dusted. I was down to like you know 10k or whatever. Wow. Because I had like, I had like 300, 350, you know, going into before Black Friday hits and then Black Friday hits and I have like a hundred of it on stars or whatever. I was able to cash that out. But then I go to the world series and I'm just thinking the whole time during the series, like, I'm just going to fire hard because I'm going to get all this other money and I'm like playing really well and I'm crushing. I'm just going to fire everything, you know? And so I, I was down like a decent amount at the world series and then the Black Friday news hits and the full tilt money is all gone. All of a sudden it's just like, holy shit, I go from all this money to just like nothing i mean I, I was a lot younger back then too so i could have managed the situation in a more conservative fashion obviously but i just sort of like blindly assumed that the full tilt money would be coming back a lot before it actually did yeah so you just went to the wsop with no reservations to yeah, plan your back then it was so easy you know like you could you could dust a roll and just rebuild it i mean it's it just it's, it's hard to like adjust from this like because on on the day on when Black Friday hits everything changes right the reality fundamentally changes but for me I was still sort of stuck in that earlier reality where I'm just like a crusher and I need to be playing everything as high as possible because I'm crushing. And I so mean there was, was it was shocking 
there was there was shock. I remember thinking like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be that big of a deal. But it was just like the shock of the situation. You know, the reality hadn't fall, fallen on me yet. And to, right. it, it took a while for the reality of the situation to be like, holy shit, like it's not going to, it's never going to be the same again. They're, they're paying out the rest of the world balances like at the beginning, but then, you know, it took them two months to get their license pulled. So I, I just sort of assumed I could relocate and they'd pay me my balance as soon as I changed my address to Canada or whatever. But yeah. it obviously worked that way. And then of course the market fundamentally changed, right? Like once the American market was gone, you know, the whole, the whole market shrunk by whatever percent and things got tougher and changed the trajectory for sure. Yes. Everything, everything really hinged on Black Friday. So you start selling action, you start rebuilding do you remember your first score, like when you first started, you know, getting your feet back under you again after the debacle of Black Friday? Yeah, 2013 is when I really started to piece it all back together. I had a really good first half of 2013 online. I crushed. Um, I, I think I, I chopped the Sunday 500 heads up in January 2013 for like 50K or something. That was my first uh, post-Black Friday, like fully rebuild score. And then from there, I was able to string together a number of scores in the first six months of 2013. I think I went on a decent size heater like 150k or something like that so that, that was enough to rebuild and then in the summer of 2013 we moved here and uh you know once once i moved here i started off pretty well from here it's, it was a nice uh a nice life adjustment for us to move to amsterdam what do you make of online poker the landscape right now that hard to say because there's so much going on this year with the coronavirus and like the economic devastation and everything, it's just hard to it's hard to know what is like an organic trend of online poker and what is all these like extra things coming in, you know. For but, sure. Um, I don't know. Overall, it seems like there's some positive stuff. Like parties trying kind of hard to expand their guarantees and stuff. GG Network is blowing up. I mean, they're they're really expanding the game to a lot of parts of Asia, so they're they're uh, definitely responsible for like a, a lot of growth. So there are reasons to be optimistic. And you know, the virus obviously gave us a huge influx of new money. I don't know how much of it will stay. But it's very hard to predict going forward. But I was cautiously optimistic before all of the disruptions of this year. And so far, the disruptions of this year have largely benefited online poker. So we'll just kind of see where it goes from there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely tough to gauge in the U.S. market because we don't see anything, right? Like, right, right. I, I had never heard of GG Poker before Daniel Negreanu became, like, their ambassador. But apparently, <laughs> that's where all the action is, right? Or just a, oh, a yeah, ton of it. I was I was uh, sponsored by Natural Aid, which is a skin of theirs for like two years, but then they had to leave the Netherlands for regulatory reasons late last year. But um, it's it's a very it's been a very fast growing network for the last two or three years. I've heard their rake on cash game. Can you talk speak about their rake on cash game? Because I've seen some really bad things some weird stuff about that. I don't know. I only played MPTs, so I honestly don't know the details about their cash games. But yeah. um, I've heard that they base your rake back on like how much of a fish they think you are. Yeah. Which Stars does to some degree as well. Like actually, when I have losing months on Stars, they'll give me these like rate back challenges, you know, where they basically offer me like forty percent rate back for a period. They'll be like, you know, the next like four K rate you clear will give you back sixteen hundred, and they give you these like special offers or whatever. So, so a lot of sites are engaging in that sort of behavior, and it might be, it might be positive in the long run, but I think they should at least be transparent about it. Yes, there's very little transparency. Um, yeah, the GG is definitely like so there's some stuff. Yeah, not, you don't you don't know everything about like what's going on, so I'm I'm not really sure, but it's definitely growing really fast, and and there's a lot of new Asian players coming in on the on the network. I mean, this is the problem, right? Like with no regulation in the U.S. and no structure, no anything. It, like it, they made the Wild West just even wilder. Oh, it's very yeah, it's extremely wild. Like I mentioned in a podcast recently that 
it reminds me of like a wasteland from like Mad Max that it's just like every man for themselves, everybody like it's just it's really tough. And I, I do think that online poker would boom again if it got legalized and regulated in the US, but that's a giant if, right? I, I agree. I mean, if they could start advertising it on ESPN during NFL games or whatever, like they used to back in the glory days, I think we could, we could definitely see a second boom. It's just a, a big if, like you said. And the money, like when somebody can just whip out their wallet, right. use their debit card to deposit. Card. I mean, that's, that's how, easier, yeah. that's how poker bros runs, right? Like that, that's the only reason why poker bros is a thing in the U S and right. they just crush their players with rake. But right. That's how people get money on. And it's very, very easy. You don't have to learn how to use Bitcoin. Like it's insane to think that the, the sites even have as much traffic as they do with the massive hurdles that are that are required for payment systems. I mean, the, the traffic could easily just like 5x if you got rid of those. For sure. And then maybe ACR would crash and never come back if traffic 5x, I guess. <laughs> um, that's better servers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a mystery to me. I like, I don't remember back in the day in like 2004, 2005 on party poker, party poker servers crashing during tournaments, like ever. I've never remember that happening ever. And that was 15 years ago. I'd love to see historical stats on that sort of thing. If anyone ever kept them, I kind of doubt they did. When did they start tracking like uh, traffic and everything? I have no idea. I have no idea either. But now that you mentioned, it'd be interesting to look back and kind of see like how many, how many consec- uh, concurrent players they had back then compared to now. I wonder what it was. I'm sure it was just a ton because party poker was the big, it was like the first black Friday right. back in 2005 or 2006. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't really playing on party. I was more on stars then. So that, that one didn't really hit me as much because I was still in school. I wasn't playing quite so seriously at that point, but I do remember it uh, shaking up the landscape. For sure. It was the number one platform in the world and it was just, it was massive. And that was the first time that it was like, I, that should have been a wake up call to me that's like hey these guys can just disappear like these guys can you're you're not secure in thinking that you can go to bed at night wake up log on and play online poker but you just kind of you know again i was god 23 years old so i knew almost biased man it's a hell of a thing man i mean especially right now you don't even know like if you're going to be able to travel to another country or the streets are going to be run with tanks you don't even know what the hell's going to happen tomorrow so there's a lot of, uh, now's a great time to throw out your, your normalcy bias for sure. Yes, it is a weird, weird time that we are living through. Um, <laughs> going, going back to online poker, when you think of joy in your career playing poker, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Meeting Sean Deeb heads up in the Sunday Brawl in 2009. That was my first big score. Because like I was saying before, I always had these like 30K scores, but I never had like the 100K score that really like, gives you that solid foundation to build from, you know, as an MTP player. So in, in summer of 2009, I got heads up against Sean D in the Sunday Brawl and full tilt. First was like 83 or 90K or something like that. It was very big. And, you know, he always thought I sucked back then because I wasn't very good to be fair, but like nobody was. And he was the best at MTPs, but he always thought I was like especially bad. And I was, I was very weak and like nitty back then. But I got to the final table with him and then I, I was playing really hard and like aggressive that day because I like recently made some evolutions in my game. We wound up getting heads up, and I had a, a lead. I was up 3.2 million to 2.8. I remember the stacks very well. And I offered him an even chop because I knew he was better than me. And he just types LOL in the chat. I'm like, all right, well, then fuck you, buddy. So it took me 15 minutes, and I, and I beat him. And that was just like the best feeling ever. What, what did it feel like when you took down just, Sean it was Deep? So like It was just so like vindicating, you know? And it was like in the middle of the World Series, all my friends were there watching because it was in the middle of the WSOP in the summer, you know, and 
the backyard or some like shitty rental house in Vegas we were staying at. It was yeah, it was great, man. It's that that's like why you play the game and stuff like that. So you had like a live Twitch stream going, just all yeah, your guys, much, yeah. everybody standing behind <laughs> you cheering. Five people, but yeah, it was a, <laughs> an early version of the Twitch stream, I guess. Yeah, the more primitive version of Twitch. Yeah, exactly. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Probably moving to the Netherlands. I mean, that's pretty random, right? That is pretty random. I grow up and think like, I'm going to move to the Netherlands when I'm 25, but that's what we did. Um, so, I mean, I'm glad I did, especially now. It seems like a great time to be abroad and, you know, the just past all, all the recent stuff, like the, the quality of life and, you know, just the like walkable nature of the cities, everyone rides bikes and stuff. It's just like a really different lifestyle and it's really good for uh, uh, raising kids, especially. So I think that like the, the happy accident that I wound up moving over here because of Black Friday has actually wound up being like a very interesting life change and I think has led to a lot of positive developments. Do you have kids? Do you yeah, have kids now? Yeah, four and, well, they're almost four and two. Just, just shy of that. Has it has it affected poker at all? I assume no. Just the same. I mean, yeah, my wife is full time mom, which helps a lot because that way we we you know we can work together to deal with the kids, but she can take the majority of it. Um, so my my poker has changed some. Like my I, I can't just like fire up sessions as casually as I used to like during the day or whatever. But so I, I'm a little bit more regimented about like when I'm playing versus when I'm not playing. Whereas back in the day, I could just kind of open my laptop and just start playing whatever I wanted. And then I also started the Twitch stream around the birth of my son in uh, 2016. So it sort of made me get a little more serious about like the business end of things and having other income streams as well. How has Twitch been as far as generating other revenue streams? Like, tell me about the your Twitch journey. So I, I wanted to start Twitching because I, I felt like I was the second person, or I was going to be the second person to ever hit 10 million in career caches. But I felt like... Uh, nobody ever heard of me despite that. And I was like, well, that seems kind of silly. Like maybe I should try to raise my profile a little bit, maybe get like a sponsorship from a site or whatever. And I also thought it was like kind of a good way to reconnect with a lot of my friends from back home, you know, cause I had a lot of friends who played poker with me until black Friday hit and they weren't at the level required to justify like leaving the country. You know, it's a pretty big commitment to like move abroad to, to keep your career going. So obviously you have to be like very sure of it to do that. And I had a lot of friends who were playing poker, but they weren't playing it at a high enough level to justify that or whatever. So it was sort of a way to reconnect with them as well. It's like, you guys can watch me play and kind of see how the game works nowadays. We can just like hang out online if, if you're bored or whatever. So that, that was a, a motivation for me as well. Uh, when I started, it blew up pretty fast. Um, I had like 300, 500 viewers right off the bat, like pretty consistently. And it was, it was, there was a lot of hype around the stream when I first started. So it was pretty easy for me to like really dive into it over time. Uh, Things slowed down a bit, especially when I got the natural A sponsorship. I had to start showing all my action on the GG network rather than the, the other tables. And I guess people are more interested in seeing some other stuff like stars is just like more naturally uh, showable on stream. So my, my, my viewer numbers have, have dropped off a little bit over time. But now now that I'm focusing more on just streaming deep runs, they're, they're back up to being pretty good again. So uh, I guess it's it's it was like a lot of momentum at first. It went really well. Definitely raised my profile. I got some announcing gigs. I got some uh, sponsorships and stuff. And, uh, you know, now that we have two kids and now that I'm trying to, like, study more, stay more on top of the game itself, I haven't been streaming as much, but it's still a nice uh, outlet and it still has pretty good support when I do fire it up. For any listener who wants to start a Twitch stream, a poker stream, what wisdom could you share with them? Consistency is the number one thing. And you got to be ready to, like, really grind it out because it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it, it helps to build a following if you're on every night consistently, you know, talking to people, making friends and stuff, people come back and they fall into habits, you know, so the, the most important thing is consistency. But the other thing you really want to do is find some sort of angle because there's just a bazillion poker streamers now, especially like way more than when I started. 
Um, so it's, it's important to have an angle. I had a pretty easy angle. I was the second person who was going to hit 10 million in caches or whatever. So that was like a cool thing for people to follow. Who was um, first? Uh, Mormon. Mormon. Yeah. Um, I'm actually like number 10 all time or something. I have a whole bunch of people leapfrog me since then because online high stakes nosebleeds have just like blown up like that GG stuff you were talking about. You know, they're playing these, they're running 25 Ks every day. Like you're not going to keep up with career caches and people who are playing 25 Ks every day, but it, it was cool to get there a second when it was uh, available. Yeah, I had Apes I was on, and he oh, was yeah, he's the best. He 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 was saying how the they they were firing the twenty five Ks pretty much every day, and like multiple bullets and guys. You know, the player that the tournament was built around would fire like three hundred K in these right. silly tournaments and stuff. Um, I think he won like like he had added four million to his resume in like two months. <laughs> like. <laughs> Not surprising. I mean, that, but that, that's kind of why GG is successful, though, because like they know a lot of the Macau guys, like personally, they're willing to do shit. Like, we'll start an entire series of 25Ks just to cater to this one guy, you know? I mean, that's like, that's just kind of the type of stuff you have to do nowadays, I guess, to, to keep the action going, especially at that level, because one, one super whale can keep a lot of those tournaments alive. Yeah, one super whale makes it profitable for, you know, the other. I don't know, know how many handed you play on GG Poker, whether it's standard. Eight, nine? I think eight. For those higher stakes ones, I'm pretty sure it's eight. Yeah. The other seven players are profitable poker players when that guy is sitting down. The the rake is minuscule at that. I thought the whole two is 25K plus. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but I'm I'm sure it's a very small percentage compared to what rake is for most MVPs. Yeah, that's typically how it it works. It's funny, the higher stakes you play, the less relative rake you end up paying. Oh, I mean, in, some, in many ways, the, the like upper mid stakes are the toughest, right? Because if you go to the true nosebleeds, you get you get whales and you get these like Silicon Valley tech CEOs who are like they just want to play for a lot of money. Like they're not they're not necessarily good. So it's actually like the upper mid stakes, especially online, is kind of where the toughest thing you can be in. Like to go to go to the very top is, is actually a lot easier. It's just hard to have the bankroll and the connections to get there. Yeah, I mean, because there's the barrier to entry is so massive, right? Like to play at 25k i mean the barrier to entry is just huge so you you have either the crushers or people who are good at raising money and and selling action and that that side of the game and then you have some whales who drop in so a shallow player pool and typically weaker whereas the higher upper end of mid stakes you got a lot of people that can afford to play in those tournaments and so the field is just by nature stronger that's why you know it's always is kind of ironic to me how, you know, you, you play 500 no limit. There's tons of regs. You move up to 2K and like the games are just as good or better at 2K than. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, very much so. People are surprised, you know. You yeah. Look at the very highest games and or like the million dollar tournaments in Vegas or whatever. Like that tournament's got a, a bunch of regs, and you have to have a million dollars to get in there, and you have to like not be losing so much against the regs that you're still beating the field. It's it's, it's a tall order. Yeah, for sure. What does your process look like for regularly improving your game? I study a lot of, I do a lot of DTO poker, which is the uh, the training app. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm, I'm sure you have by now. I mean, you're, you're doing a bunch of interviews and stuff, but uh, so it, it'll just show you, you can dive deep into spots. Um, there's like 40 different spots you can choose from with different like positions and blinds and you can just run a whole bunch of them. And uh, so like, that's a very convenient way for studying when you have kids, especially because I can just take them to the playground. I can bust out my phone. I can just run a bunch of Sims while they're playing or whatever. So it's super efficient in that regard. And then for deeper study, I get coaching from BBZ. Uh, like I try to do once a week during a scoop, I drop the ball a little bit, but we, we do some coaching and content together. So I definitely like do a lot of studying with them. 
And then uh, I'm also in a few like Discord chats and stuff where we share uh, sims and stuff like that. So. BBZ is a coaching group, stable? He runs a stable, but he also does coaching. I'm not in a stable. I, I just pay him for coaching and then we collaborate on like videos and stuff. Nice. How important do you think it is to have a poker coach? Oh, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's, it's like, unless you're the type of person who's just like super detail oriented and capable of looking at your own stats and hand histories with a critical eye. I mean, many people do have that, especially really naturally gravitate towards poker. They will have that ability to be honest with themselves and have the ability to like really look into stuff. But for most people, you know, they just kind of play and they just play and like, you know, it really helps to have someone look into your stats and be like, Hey, you're like bleeding a bunch of value here. You're deviating here. You need to do this. You need to do this. You know, just having a second person who knows like what things should look like, who can go through your stats and kind of tell you where you're deviating and what you can improve. I think it's very, very beneficial, especially when you consider the, the compounding returns of even a small improvement in your win rate over the course of however many hands you're going to play. I mean, like the returns on studying or getting coached are just like boundless basically. Can you explain basically on the compounding effects? Can you, can you break those down? Like, so coaching adds X win rate to your tournament ROI. Yeah. And it's, then, hard, it's hard to give an actual, like, but let's just say you win one more big blind per hundred, right? Last month, I think I played like 50,000 hands. So, you know, if you, if you win another big blind per hundred, that's quite a few extra big ones over the course of 500 extra big ones over the course of the month. And, uh, you know, it's going to add up. That's just one month over the course of the year. That's a shitload of extra big ones. And I'm not sure exactly how that translates directly into ROI, but with the amount of volume I'm playing, especially, I mean, if you're not quite as much of a volume grinder, you're not going to see the the same return, but if you're playing any sort of big volume over, over the course of a large sample, a a marginal increase in win rate will will yield incredible dividends. For sure. And a lot of times too, it's hard to know what you don't know. And I, I cover this a lot with my students and people that ask me questions about poker and it's like, well, if you record a video and send me the video and I ask you to make timestamps, you'll make timestamps on the spots you think you're struggling in. Right. However, when we watch the video back, we're going to find 10 other spots that you didn't even think twice about that exactly. are also spots that you need to, to work on. So just having somebody else who can discern that for you is so 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 important because that's a huge point yeah uh, i find that a lot when i'm doing sessions with bbz i'll just kind of be like going through hands quickly and i just like blast past something he's like wait stop there like we got to look at that and then he'll explain why i'm just like need to be considering another option or whatever it's like oh i never even would have thought of that and without a coach you're not gonna you're never gonna hear about that so that's, that's a very very good point what do you think the most high impact action folks can take is to improve their game good question I guess just finding a network of, of good players to help you improve and like talk ideas with is probably the the best like investment of time you can get, like joining a stable or just like forming a group of your friends who are all trying to study and improve as well. I think, I think those are very good, but in terms of like your own, I guess just, uh, honestly, I think DTO is one of your best returns on time. It's not, it's, it's incomplete, right? Because they only solve for a few bet sizes and they only solve for a few particular spots. But if you really dive into a spot, you run 200 hands in that spot, you know, you'll, you'll really get a great idea of like which boards you want to do what on, which boards you want to get big, which boards you want to get small, which boards you want to check raise more, that sort of thing. So honestly, I think in terms of like return for your time, just like mashing DTO is probably the highest EV. But if you want to get some deeper study, then having a study group or a coach is going to be very beneficial as well. If you were to lose all of your connections that you have in the poker world today, you're a brand new human, but you have all your knowledge how would you go about building that network from the ground up? I guess um, 
I mean, probably like getting back to be the easiest thing, but if you're a completely new person with no connections, that's probably a little bit difficult. So, um, I mean, there, there are some websites you can join the, the Discord communities of, you know, like a lot of these websites like Upswing, Razor Edge, uh, DTO, they all have very like active Discord communities that you can join and talk strategy with. And then once you've sort of built up a bit of a reputation that way, I guess you could uh, seek backing. But um, honestly, like working your way up for micro stakes might not be the worst option either if you're willing to be diligent about it and grind. Like a lot of these guys have successfully done bankroll challenges, starting with like 100 bucks, running up to 5K or whatever. And if you're willing to like actually adhere to bankroll requirements and actually be diligent about it, I think you could you could probably like compound a bankroll from a relatively small amount within a fairly short period of time. Yeah, I think so too. It's it's tough for the new person starting out with no connections. And oh, it's very tough. Yeah, it's not I, easy. I say the same thing. It's like find a network. You know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Find those five people, you know, but people are like, I don't know how to, I don't know where to get started. Where do I go oh, to find these people? To some of these coaching sites is probably a great starting point. I think. For sure. If you, you know, pay the, whatever it is for upswing, um, whatever it is for learnpropoker.com, $40 a month, you just get plugged in into yeah. a ready to ready-made network and then you just engage people and try to offer value and try to ask questions and people who see themselves in you are more than willing to give you feedback and help you out for absolutely free. I found when it comes to poker strategy, people are very, very generous in their time and their energy um, answering questions. Yeah. Part of that is because teaching helps you learn as well, right? So if if someone's asking you questions and you're kind of like trying to answer them, it, it can help you make new connections for yourself and help you sort of reinforce the things you need to be thinking about. So I, I found that like coaching actually is one of the best ways to learn for me. Yeah, it is hundred percent. It is. And also for me, I, I don't know about you, but when you're a cash game grinder for 15, 16 years, uh, helping people giving back some to the community is also. That's rewarding. Know, yeah. yeah it's rewarding. I, I, I have the same feeling helping like, uh, especially like, I don't know, some, some people who are like, in the States trying to make it on the, in this new world with like the unregulated markets or whatever, I, I get extra satisfaction trying to help them sort of navigate the new reality, you know, cause I think it's kind of a shame that the U S has been short on producing poker talent relative to what we could have done over the last 10 years. You know, a lot of the high stakes, like there are some good American high stakes pressures, but most of them started way back in the day. We're kind of missing a, a new generation of talent because of like what black Friday did to our market. And so like helping people sort of navigate what's going on now is, is something that I get a lot of satisfaction out of. I, the only people that are going to make it through right now, through all of the noise, build a name for themselves are going to be amazing. Like they're going to be world-class players, especially oh, in the U S market because so much tougher now, yeah, yeah you, you got a battle, like you got to battle it at, at every single turn. And, um, if you make it in the U S market, you're going to come out the other side, a warrior <laughs> who's hardened battle ready. When you move to Amsterdam, did you find the games? I, I I know the games got a lot tougher, like the tourneys. You mentioned oh, your yeah. friends didn't move. Did you struggle off the bat? Not off the bat. It took until I think what really happened is when they banned when they got rid of the supernova elites, everything went to shit uh, at that point because you know stars pulled the rug out from under the supernova elites. It was a mid twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen something like that, and that was when I went on the biggest downswing of my career. And the reason was because all these guys who were playing cash who were playing sit and goes suddenly went MPTs. And these guys are like way more well studied. They're way better players. They're way more serious, you know. And then all the MPT ranks back then were just kind of like holdovers from pre Black Friday. And we weren't like the, the the whole like solver revolution hadn't really taken root yet in like 2013, 14. 
So a lot of us weren't studying on the same level. So these sit-and-go guys, these cash guys come into our games and just start making them way tougher than they were before. So that, that definitely uh, cut into my win rate quite a bit. I think that was a huge factor in why I had a downswing from like 2014 to 15. Why did the cash games move over to NTTs? Well, they were making so much money as Supernova Elites with the rake back, right? Supernova Elites, like 65% rake back or something like that. It worked out to like over 100K a year in benefits. And suddenly Stars just takes that away. And so what that does is it kills the cash games because nobody's playing that high anymore because they don't get the rake back. And then so the cash guys have to go lower, but then the, the rake can also raise at the lower cash game. So a lot of them just found it more profitable to leave cash entirely and go to MVPs. Sad. Yeah, they really, they really, I mean, Stars wasn't making that much. I guess the, the Supernova Elite paradigm it sort of locked Stars into this thing where like there were all these like sick regs just grinding it out against each other and Stars wasn't making as much as they thought they should. But the way they did it, they just kind of like took away everyone's benefits with no warning, basically. So it was kind of sketchy the way they did it. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you heard about that. It was a while back. Oh, yeah, for sure. You can rehash it if, if you want for the audience if they don't remember. I mean, yeah, so basically the way Supernova Elite worked was you would you would play, you would pay a shitload of rake one year and it would set you up for 100K in benefits or whatever the next year. And then if you'd have to play, pay all that rake again the next year to keep it extended by another year. But basically the idea was you put in your dues this year, next year you reap your rewards. But one year, Stars basically just pulled out the next year part of the equation and everyone had already paid their dues. Everyone had already been playing, paying all this rake with the, under the assumption that they'd be getting a huge refund as a Supernova Elite. And suddenly Stars was just like, no, we're not doing that. So like they could have, gotten rid of the program that's their right but they they should have honored what those people had already earned and they didn't do that so that was kind of like drove this whole reaction against stars and that's why stars reputation over the past five years or whatever has really gone to shit they had a absolutely sterling impeccable reputation when they got bought out in 2014-15 and since then it's just tanked how do we as a community is there any way to band together to put pressure on these companies to cut out the bullshit. I mean, the only way to put pressure on them really is to not give them action, right? Yeah, people and, try. The problem is it's, you get in a prisoner's dilemma, right? Because like, let's say like the hundred best regs on a site all say, fuck it, we're going to boycott. We're not going to play here because you guys are like screwing us. Well, then that creates a huge opportunity for the next tier of regs, right? They can all jump on and take all the money that the top hundred regs are foregoing by not playing. So, and the other thing is the sites don't want winning players. They don't want us. Oh, Rose, of course Rose not. Regs are like an inevitable consequence of running a poker site. They're not a desirable outcome for a site. Like you want a few winners so that people you can be like, oh, look at these huge winners. You, you want you want a dream that people can chase or whatever. But you'd rather have all your winners be luck and not skill, right? You don't want people who are routinely taking money out of your site like regs are. So it, it's very difficult for regs to exert pressure on the poker sites because for one, it's, it's hard for us to band together and because of the incentives involved. And for the other, they just don't care. We just don't have that much leverage over them. Yeah, it would have to be the rec players as well. Like you would have to be collecting the rec players and it, not just the pros. Because like you said, you know, I, I've had meetings with poker corporations and they've basically been like, yeah, like, you know, we don't want people like you. Like this is, this is like, we don't want winning players, et cetera, et, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, so like it would take someone like Negroni who could actually influence like recreational opinion to lead a boycott to, to make that happen. But he hasn't, I understand why. I'm not trying to like he's like you know a bad person for not doing it. i understand why he hasn't done it he's, he's subject to the same incentives as the rest of us but it would really take someone with that sort of clout in the community to sort of lead a, a coordinated effort to, to make sites change their practices and i don't see anything like that happening yeah it's it's an uphill battle that's just likely never going to happen it's unfortunate because it puts yeah, the players in a situation where they just continually get fucked and yep. what do we do we just eat it yeah, I mean, we're all just fucking each other, you know, so <laughs> the nature of the deal. So 
You just try to get fucked less than you do the fucking, I guess. <laughs> uh, what's what's something you feel folks who are chasing their poker dreams don't spend enough time thinking about? I guess just studying. I mean, that's kind of a cliche answer, but you know, the, the thing about poker is there's no secret sauce, right? It's like it's just a combination of all these tiny little details and tiny little decisions that all add up and all these little percentages and all these tiny little 1%, 2%, 3% edges all over the place that you can pick up. And, you know, the more of those you pick up, the better you're going to do. The more of those you leave on the table, the worse you're going to do. And honestly, like, you just kind of dive into the details and just really consider all of that as much as you can. Just always be trying to improve on all, all, the, all the little things that you can improve on. Uh, the other thing, I guess, is just bankroll management because everyone sucks at that. What do you mean by that? Everybody sucks at bankroll management. Especially in MTTs, people, people will hit a score and then they immediately move up. And it's like they don't understand just how big of a skill jump the buy-in levels can be. I mean, I'm guilty of this as well. You know, I mean, I'll hit a score and I'll, I'll suddenly start playing like a buy-in level higher than I have been. And then, you know, I'll have a bad week or two and I'm like, wait, I should you know, probably drop back down until I've studied more or whatever. Um, so I think bankroll management, especially in MTTs, is a very common weak point for a lot of players. And that's something that people should probably be like, airing way more on the conservative side than they are. So basically you have a bankroll requirement, right? You bank a tournament and technically using your bankroll requirement, you can move up in stakes. Yep. However, because the skill level is different from where you're at right now, you need a bigger bankroll to be able to sustain playing at the bigger stake, right? Is that what you're and saying? Your ROI is going to drop when you move up and people don't always, and they might even drop so far that it goes negative, in which case, you know, you shouldn't be moving up. So I think it's, it's, it's very important to uh, consider the potential, like the, the combination of an ROI drop and a higher buy-in inflates the variance in ways that people don't account for, I think. And that's very important to, uh, to pay attention to. How do you navigate moving up then? What's a good way to go about it? You know, just be like super conservative about it, I guess. Just like take shots. And, and one thing you can do is if you if there's a tournament you want to play that's a higher buy than you're used to, you can look it up on Sharkscope for the previous days and see what the average ability level of the players in it is. The ability on Sharkscope is kind of a flawed metric. I don't even know exactly what it captures, but it captures something. And so you're, if, let's say you normally play a 55 ABI and you're like, all right, I want to play like some 109s or 160s today. What you should do is like look at the tournaments you want to play. Look at the lobbies of that tournament on previous days and see how tough it is. And if it's soft, then take your shot. If it's going to be tough, then don't. You know, like one of the worst things you can do is move up and buy ins and target tough tournaments. Like if you're going to move up and buy ins, you should at least be making sure that you're playing in bigger fields, softer fields, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a greatness bomb right there. Scope out the games that you're going to play in to see if the skill differential is major. And if it yeah. is, yeah. because if someone explained it to me this way, which makes a lot of sense, like think of an eleven dollar tournament. Like everyone's going to play like the Sunday Storm. Like everyone's going to play the Sunday Storm. It's a eleven dollar tournament, huge field, huge, huge prize pool. Like everyone's gonna play it. Then you go up to like the, the big twenty two. It's also a big, a big field, a big prize pool. But some percentage of those players from the Sunday Storm will not make it up to the big twenty two. And then you go up to the big forty four. Some percentage of them won't make it up, and so on and so forth. And in every jump, the percentage of players who won't make it up are all recreationals. So at every jump, you lose X percent of recreationals. And I think people don't consider just like how substantial the ramifications of that can be when it comes to your ROI and your bankroll engine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's classic Pareto principle where 80%, 80 of your winnings come from 20% of the players. The 20% of the players are the wrecks, and you get fewer and fewer of them each step of the ladder that, that you move up. Yeah, exactly. What's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'll have to think about that. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. I got to think of a good answer to that one. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing 
about poker besides restoring poker in the U.S.? <laughs> what yeah. would it be? Lowering rake across the board, I guess. I think they rake too much, and I just don't see the need for, like, you're not even paying dealers. Like, why are you raking 9% out of every, MD, every MDT? That's absurd. I mean, and, like, the sites all do it because that's just sort of what the industry standard is, and they can get away with it. But, like, I just can't imagine that that's, like, what is required or what the, like, optimal competitive amount would be if they were forced into a truly competitive free market, you know? So I, I just, I, I just, I have to assume that the rate could be lower than it is. Um, and then I guess just making payment processors more reliable and easy would be the other thing. They don't have to because there's nobody forcing them to do it, right? There's no, the rake, yeah, yeah, yeah there, there's no coalition. They're all going to maximize, they're all going to maximize their earnings as a corporation. That's what they're built to do. Right. So, you know, we, we just can't, it's more marketing costs, I would say, than so like server costs or anything. Marketing costs are probably more of it. And then just like executive bonuses and stuff like that. And research and development. Research right. and development is probably pretty big. Like I feel like there's so much room for innovation when it comes to just the type of games that are offered. More innovation as it relates to policing real-time assistance and bots and all of those shenanigans. But it's expensive. And stuff behind the scenes we're not seeing all of, so we don't really know. But uh, it just seems like there should be at least more competition on that regard. You know, it's like a site should be able to say, like, hey, we're lowering our rake and like people should flock there. And that's like not at all the situation right now. Yeah, because I think recreational players don't care about the rake. And right. that's it, it, it. Again, we go back to incentives. The recs don't care about the rake. The regs go where the recs are. Therefore, everybody goes to the place and they pay the rake. And that's just the way it is. Right, right. Yeah, so it's unfortunate. We're trapped in a number of just like prisoner's dilemmas in the poker industry, and I don't really see a good way out of any of them. Tell me about the prisoner's dilemma. Can you explain? It's a thought experiment? Yeah, it's, it's a game theory concept where basically um, you have two prisoners, and they are both promised a deal if they defect on the other one, like a better deal if they defect on the other one, right? So each one, so there, there are four possible outcomes, right? If neither prisoner defects, that's the best outcome, because then they're, neither one of them is going to be charged with anything, right? If one defects and the other does not defect, then the one who defected gets rewarded and the one who doesn't defect gets punished, which is a net worse outcome, but, you know, it, it benefits the one who defects. And, uh, you know, that, there's two possible permutations of that. There's two prisoners and the other permutation is they both defect and they both confess. And that's the worst because they both get thrown into all, right? And so the way the prisoner's dilemma works is both people always wind up defecting because that's just the way that their individual game theory matrix plays out. So, like, even though... You would have a better outcome if they cooperated. It's impossible to guarantee cooperation because there's no mechanism for in- encouraging it to be repeated cooperation. Therefore, they defect and that you get the worst outcome. And that's sort of what we see in poker a lot of the time. Yes, this is perfectly encapsulated by that Venetian tournament that ran, I think it was last year, where it was like 300K guaranteed period. And right. yeah. if, if it goes over, we're not adding the money to the prize pool. And right. they met the guarantee, which was very sad very sad to me, but it yeah. just said that like, no matter, and it was the Venetian too, of all places. Like that's just, you know, Sheldon saying, yeah. fuck you guys. I can control everything that you do. It doesn't matter. If I give you value, you're going to show up. And that's just the way it is. And like humiliation, honestly, I mean, they're all just like, yes, sir, please. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it is humiliating, right? Like we can't yeah. even we can't even stiff it to this one guy. Like we're so obsessed with getting some value. Public, public enemy number one of the whole fucking community. We still we still just bow down to him. Yeah, that's it's it's a, it's a sad situation. Yeah, it, I was. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me, but 
But when I look at that as like a microcosm of just the poker world, it makes me very, very sad for good things happening down the pike because that goes to show you like we're incentivized by value and that's it. Nothing, nothing else really matters. Honestly, we're lucky things are as good as they are probably. (laughs) Oh man, that's a, that's a hard hard thing for me to even digest. (laughs) If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Mathematics of poker. Dry as hell, but I found it very useful because it's not based on one particular game. You know, a lot of the strategy books from that era have aged very poorly. And mathematics of poker is just about the game theory superstructure of poker games and how you should think about them and like what you should be thinking about, like maximizing your your edge, that sort of thing. So I, I found that book to be by far the most useful book I ever read about poker. And because it just sort of gave me the framework for thinking about like how I should be breaking down spots and how I should be analyzing them. And as opposed to just like, you know, reading some book that was like, oh, you should like open kings from here but not here or whatever whatever the specific knowledge of the time was back then is aged very poorly but yeah mathematics is aged pretty well yeah i mean it's like former chasing poker greatness guest matt hunt said that poker is a mathematical game and it's taught verbally and lots of things get lost in translation when you're trying to teach things verbally i've had the thought to myself recently like why do we say why do we even say under the gun why is under the gun a thing when like under the gun at nine max is totally different than under the gun at six max, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just totally different positions. And we still were like under the gun, under the gun plus one. It's kind of silly that it's not just, uh, you know, something else. Like the one seat, one one through nine, and then you have ranges for one. And when you're playing six max, you're automatically starting at four, right? So you're right. opening the, the four range, but. Anyway, that's a great point about the verbal uh, versus mathematical. Yeah. I mean, humans are generally just like verbal narrative creatures and poker is a very mathematical game. And that's why, that's why it's so profitable, right? Because the human brain just does not naturally lend itself to like probabilities and and mathematics the way, the way poker works. For sure. And Matt made another great point. He said that he has a theory. He can't prove it that based on different languages, different different languages are going to breed different styles of poker players because languages are different and how they're structured. That's really interesting. I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like Scandinavians are crazy and maybe it has something to do with the language and how they, you know, just how they speak and, and discuss poker strategy compared to different languages. As well. Portuguese. Who knows, man? Yeah. It seems, it seems to be that there's definitely like a, a regional difference based on different countries and maybe, maybe the linguistics is the root of it. I mean, seems like it, but who knows? Go, let's go back to that question. Common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with. I'm, I'm just trying to think of like common advice that I hear. I guess I'm just like so far removed from like the beginner scene that I, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I guess just like about like the very beginner's thing of like not playing bad hands. Like a lot of poker is very much about playing bad hands and trying to maximize them from the blinds and the button and stuff like that. So like, I mean, that, that's like super basic, but it's one of the things that first pops into mind is just, you know, when you're first learning like a hand chart, Oh, you never play like 10, four suited. That's a trash hand. But like, no, there are actually many spots in which you do need to play with that hand and you need to learn to think of things in terms of like, I'm going to play this percent of my hands rather than think of things in, in more verbal terms. Like you were sort of alluding to what you were saying before. So the main determiner as to whether or not you put money in a pot is not your hand. This is the right. breaking it down. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a good way to break. Yeah, range and position and stacks and all that are far more important. 
what are some situations where you should be playing any two that you can think of like in a tournament? Heads up. Uh, sub 25 big ones you're supposed to complete the small one with an a2 i think is is like i mean there there are different sub strategies you can use but basically the shorter your stack gets heads up uh you you switch to 100 percent pure limb strategy including your good hands like your, your best hands maybe not sub 25 but when you get down to like 15 or whatever i'm, I'm pretty sure that's the way it works I mean, you'll have some shoves too when you get short enough but there there are spots where you're supposed to just limp with like literally 100 and you have traps in there obviously because you're limping with your best hands as well and that way that'll enable you to also complete with like two five offsuit and stuff like that because when your head's up you get the button so like you're at the small one and the button right so you you're going to have position post block <laughs> but it moves you to to play as many hands as possible so like and you're under the gun right you're everything everything all at once <laughs> yeah it makes sense obviously later formations, smaller people, you have to start playing wider. And when you start playing wider, you have to limp your stronger hands because if you only limp your weaker hands, then you're going to be very exploitable. And a lot of things in poker are just adapting to the person that you're playing against, understanding where they're falling apart and then taking advantage of that, right? Like in some situations, the cards genuinely do not matter. Um, some spots are just plus EV. So your job is to find those spots and then take action when you find them. Yeah. Especially live that that can come up a lot. You know, people that's part of like studying too, is like part, part of, especially with deeper stacks. And I'm sure you see this a lot in cash games is like something you can do when you're playing poker is kind of catch your opponent, like a contradiction, right? Especially in cash, you can catch them in these spots where it's like they've showed up at the river and they can just never have the top X percent of their range. So suddenly you can just put in like these giant overbets and they just can't do shit about it. And like, so, so sort of catching your opponent in these contradictions where you can really exploit them is like one of the goals of studying a lot. And yeah, the more you do that, the more you know your way around all the game trees, the more you can identify those spots and really hammer people when, when you have the edge. And, and it doesn't have to be super complex, right? Like no, it doesn't. In, in a cash game, you see a player limp raise twice and then they open raise from early position. Right, right. This tells you a lot. Now you can just start three betting them relentlessly because they've taken out the best hands in their range, assuming they're doing it with value by limp raising. So when they raise, okay, we go after it, right? Yeah, it's very simple stuff. And like, and that, that sort of goes back to what I was saying about the contradictions, right? Because good players don't split their ranges like that because they know that it will trap them in a spot where one of their ranges is too weak or too strong and that they can't play like balanced strategies post-flop. But, um, you know, if, if you... If, if you're more, a more recreational player and you are splitting your ranges like that, it does open up opportunities for you to be exploited. And even good players. Like there are many spots oh, where good ranges, ranges get split. You get hand, like your example is pre-flop, which is very simple, but like the, the deeper you get into a hand, you do get these spots on turns and rivers where it's like you check twice and suddenly you just can't have this entire class of hands or whatever. So spots, spots like that are, are going to be uh, very exploitable as well. Yeah. And those happen deeper in the decision tree. A lot of times in cash games where right. you get to a river and you're like the way, you know, you, you just leave yourself open to exploitation. And you get to these river spots and it's like your opponent can just four X posh job and you just can't do a damn thing about it. And it's like, yeah, you guys, you guys play a freaking intense game. Then you start calling all of a sudden you start calling the four X's and they're value betting thinner. And right. then you're like, Oh God, now that I call with this marginal hand, now I'm over calling in this spot and you have to make an adjustment. And like, it's, it is intense. It's intense. Cash is so different because it's like it's it's you get into such deeper study like you, like that spot you're saying, but like all the spots are kind of the same, right? Because you start with 100 big ones at every spot, you know, and it's always six people or whatever, as opposed to MPTs where it's like sometimes you have 150 big one stack and 120 and 130, and you got to like adjust everything. MPTs require a lot more adjustments on the fly, but 
the repetitive nature of cash spots enables you to dive so much deeper into them and really learn them inside out, I think. Yeah, for sure. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on their way to the casino. What's the billboard say? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to maximize the EV of the community as a whole and not my own EV here. Right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I guess remember not to play too high. Keep your bankroll in mind. That's probably the number one thing I would give because, you know, playing too high and, and gambling off your whole role is probably the number one pitfall of poker players. So I think yeah. that's, that's the most important thing to keep in because, you know, as long as you have something to rebuild from, you can always rebuild. But as soon as you bust your bottom dollar, you're just out of the game. It's, survival is very important. So proper bankroll management has got to be paramount. Proper bankroll management and also, like we said, networking, right? Like right, right. If, even if you practice improper bankroll management and go broke, you can still get backing. So right. yeah, I mean, those- always having a safety net of some sort, whether it's a network or a bankroll or you know, whatever you want it to be. Very important. And, and the older you get, the more responsibilities you start having. You get a wife, you get kids, everything starts mattering. Oh yeah. yeah I, used, I used to play way more fast and loose with my role than I do now. That's for damn sure. Much yeah. more, much more cautious these days. You have a lot more to lose. Yeah. All right, a couple more questions we'll call this. What's something people would be surprised to learn you're horrible at? Surprised to learn I'm horrible at? Chess. I'm not good at chess. Yeah, me neither. I never learned it. I was playing magic my whole childhood, so I never learned chess. But a lot of poker players uh, were very good at chess. I mean, I, I was never any good at it. So I'm horrible at chess and checkers. Not good at checkers either, huh? The checkers you could probably learn with a – the game tree is not too complicated. I think you can learn it with a couple hours of study, but – I haven't played checkers in ages. I actually don't know how good I am. I played against one of my friends who's basically like a savant. And right. he, uh, I had more checkers than him one time in about 50 games in a row at like the Las Vegas airport. And I was like, fuck checkers forever. Like, Dude, and when people soft. say, when people say like, you know, they're playing checkers and I'm playing chess. I'm like, checkers is fucking hard too, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's, it's solved though, right? Like you, you can, I think, I think they solved it. Is it? I'm not sure. Years ago, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think, I think it was one of the easier games to solve checkers. But right. that doesn't mean that it's easy for a human to solve. I'm just saying that it's, it, it is, it is a solved game as, as far as like the AI milestones thing goes. It's checkers is one of the solved games. Yes, still very, very still difficult. Tough. Tough. <laughs> um, tougher than tic tac toe. It is tougher than tic tac. I solved tic tac toe in the fifth grade. This is tic tac toe. A third grader can solve tic tac toe. Connect four is a little tougher, but you can you can solve that one too. Yeah, but yeah, they get they get progressively tougher as you move up. I was obsessed with tic tac toe. Maybe that's what led me to my poker career. Uh, Loving just loving games in general and trying to figure out the theory. Like in middle school and stuff. Yeah, it's very interesting. Spades was it for me in middle in middle school and high school. Spades. Is that just like a, a color shift in hearts or is that a different game than hearts? It's different than hearts, but you have a partner. So okay. a lot determines on like how good your partner is, but there's a lot of variance too, where maybe it was like my first lesson in variance where you get bad cards, you just can't possibly win no matter what you do. So I learned to accept it's that early hard, on. You know, it's important for life to learn that lesson, honestly, because there are just spots where you just can't win and you just kind of minimize your loss. You know, the MTG okay. is the best transition into poker. Go. Is the most they've solved Go as well. I'm just reading the chat here. They solved AlphaGo. They did that like a year or two ago. Uh, they were play, play They ran an AI against like the, the top Go players in the world, and the AI came up with this completely off the wall, like crazy strategy that no human player had ever tried in thousands of years. 
and they had won like five out of the first six games or something just using this crazy ass off the wall strategy so sort of an interesting ai tidbit but yeah this is what's amazing like this is the benefit of these games getting solved like poker getting closer and closer to getting getting solved you get to see some of the really out of this world things that the ai is doing that human beings just aren't doing at all fascinating fascinating stuff yeah i played an ai uh, they, I, I did it on stream I, I won three out of five but the only reason i was able to win is because it was a sit and go format where the blinds increase every 10 hands so i was able to just basically play very tight for the first couple of levels and then once the blinds got like you know 20 bigs each or whatever i would just aggressively look for flip spots but um, if you're forced to play 200 deep the entire time or whatever, it's just unbeatable. Like they, they had all those heads up pros go against the Libratus a year or two ago, and they just got smashed. Because, you know, an AI at 200 big blinds, they can come up with all these, they, they can just like 10x pop the turn, you know, and they're doing it with like three, they're doing it with like a third of a combo. And it's like, how the hell do you ever like range them on that? You know, but they, they can balance it perfectly because it's an AI, it's calculated. So like, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. The deeper the stacks are, the more ridiculous it is. And it's very fascinating to study. Of course, and this this is one of the reasons why I think bots, when it comes to poker operators and pro players being public en- enemy number one, like to me, bots should be public enemy number one. Even oh, if they're true. even Absolutely. if they're not as good as the pros, they don't tilt. They have no emotions, and they can right. just grind it out all day long. Like they have infinite stamina and infinite uh, mental endurance. So. Right. They're going to take so much liquidity out of the poker economy. Just the idea of, of like, I mean, people can talk, people can stomach getting beaten by a superior competitor, but losing to a bot is like a different thing, you know? It's like, the, it's like the whole game was just rigged from the start if you're losing to bots. And I'm sure we are losing to bots. In oh, a, many, lot of, a lot of money to bots, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are losing a lot of money to bots. And real-time assistance, too, is another oh, issue. Yeah. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to fight that, I mean, you know? No, it drives me crazy, like, I make a bet on the river and it can be like a trivial spot. And then dudes like timing down, going into his time bank. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like they're just constantly going into their time bank in somewhat trivial situations. And it's like, Oh, they're just running Sims on the side. They're just looking it up. Or it's not that they're running Sims. They don't even stop you, right? Like stars. If you open PO solver and you have stars open, it gives you this whole message. You can't run PO. It yells at you. But like any other site, you just fire it up. doesn't even care. Or you could just run a shitload of sims that are searchable and then search them in real time so you don't have to wait on the solver to do its thing. I mean, that's that's the real... That's the more practical method, yeah. Yeah, that's the more practical. I'm teaching people how to cheat. That's great. <laughs> uh, this is not the intent of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is not this is not the intent, but like this is what's going on, right? So like... Oh, it is, absolutely. And it's hard to stop because I mean, you can stop someone from... Even if you make it effective to stop them from running software, you know, they can just have their laptop open, they can be on a cell phone with the with their coach or their friend. I mean, there's, there's it's unpoliceable at some point. Yeah, it makes me feel really sad. Uh, I know that there's probably always a lot of this going on, but as we've gotten more advanced with poker software and stuff, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's more and more necessary to be on top of all this stuff, you know, because other people are doing it and you're just going to get smashed if you're, not, if you're not like studying and at least keeping up with like the learning curve. And quite frankly, I've mentioned this before, but cheating's incentivized. Because right. what's going to happen? Ignition going to come arrest you? Like, right. are you going to get fined by ACR? Like, what the worst they can do is lock your money up and close your account. Right. And so they if, can't if, file charges or anything. They can't even like put a black mark on your record. There's nothing. No, there's nothing. For some other poker site, they wouldn't even know. 
Yeah, of course. A lot of these places don't even have know your customers. So you can just make infinite accounts and get one band. Who cares? Make another, just like steady as she goes. Um, I mean, it's poker's always been the wild west in some ways, but like, I don't know the idea of your home game getting held up by some freaking cowboy dude is, is uh, it's a little different than like getting cheated by a bunch of bots, you know, has your home game ever gotten held up by a cowboy dude? We were playing for that kind of money. (laughs) I'm just talking about the stories you'd read in super system and stuff, you know, for sure. I've, I've never been arrested or been in a game that got busted, but I played it. I've I've never done any of that. I was always, uh, Oh, I played in a game for two years, two days a week. And the guy that ran the game pissed me off. So I stopped going. Um, he wouldn't reduce the rake when it was like four handed and it was like impossible to win. So it's like, fine. Like you don't want to do that. I'm playing 14 hours, two days a week, then I'll just not stop coming. And I stopped coming the next week. They got raided by the police the police oh, shot somebody. Everybody oh. got arrested. It oh. was like a massive, massive news story in my hometown. Oh, that's intense, man. I didn't even know that sort of thing still went on. Jeez. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, I was very fortunate. <laughs> I ran very good to avoid okay, that yeah, happening. But, um, I got invited to some of that type of stuff back when I lived in LA. You know, or not, I was like just south of LA. So obviously, there were all these celebrity games. I was just like sketch. But I never, I never, I, I always thought it was too sketch. I never got into it. Yeah, that's a good decision. I've played in those too, and they are very sketchy. And I'm sure you can make some good ass money if you know the right people and you know it's on the up and up or whatever. And some of the celebrities are blasting away, but like it's yeah, you got another. It's a very underground sort of thing. Most of them are five percent uncapped rake. So right, that's how they yeah, that's how they kill you. Right? Yeah, that's that's how they get you. I play I played PLO with Gilbert Arenas one time. Oh, he nice. dropped probably sixty k and was just potting every hand in the dark pot the right. flop pot the turn pot the river like in the dark that game was profitable <laughs> despite there still being five percent uncapped rake but uh yeah it's most of those places i mean you have a legal place to play in southern california like right. so if you're going away from a legal place to play to somewhere else it's most likely just going right, yeah. to be sketchy <laughs> something's going to be on something's not going to be on the up and up yeah what's your current big goal as it relates to poker i mean i guess my, my goals are more like life related than poker related but you know, I just, I just kind of want to keep winning, you know, I just want to stay on top as long as I can. So I guess, I guess just like as many six figure profit years as possible consecutively is, is kind of what I'm aiming for. It's not, it's not a huge goal or anything, but it's, it's nice just to, you know, the older I get, the more conservative my goals become. And the more I think about just like security versus like ambition. So yeah, just, just, just kind of keep it going, just make enough money to get a house and have my family all situated. Any thoughts of leaving poker behind eventually or you still love the game Not anytime soon I, I don't know what the hell else i do honestly i love it man i mean every now and then i'll i'll like feel not feel like playing and i'll be burned out or whatever but one day off and i'm ready to get back in there even now and i think studying a lot helps with that because there's so many things you learn and there's so many things you want to try and like you know you'll study some spot you're like oh sweet i've been doing this wrong now i can like apply it at the tables the next day and that, that process of discovery and application still really speaks to me so i i have no post poker plans but you know it's always prudent to be like planting little seeds everywhere to kind of see if something might sprout and you can jump somewhere else when you need to because you never know you know like, yeah. like i was saying earlier about the recency bias and normalcy bias it really is prudent to have backup plans because you never know what will happen you need to have redundancies as a poker player because yeah. if time has told us anything it's that shit can get bad and it can get bad real quick oh yeah very fast do you have any projects you're working on that are near and dear to your heart? 
I mean, I got the Twitch stream. I've, I do some coaching videos with BBZ. I've, I've been doing some private coaching. Um, I mean, I've, I have a YouTube channel as well, but I haven't updated it in a little bit. So, I mean, I guess the projects have sort of been on the back burner this past year. I've mostly just been focusing on trying to get better at poker and, you know, being the best player I can. But I definitely want to invest some more energy into the Twitch stream going forward here now that the scoop is over. Um, so I, I think that's that's something I'm going to try to try to invest a lot of uh, effort into coming up here. If you If you could buy a book for all poker players. Oh yeah, we did that. Mathematics of poker. Mathematics. Yeah. It's do you dry. have any, do you have any, read, like 10% of them would read it. It's dry as hell. Did you ever read it? No, I did not read it. It's like reading a, it's like reading a dictionary or something. But it's, it's did you ever get that Tom Chambers PLO book that was like selling for 2,500? Was it in PDF form or was it like a, a physical book? I had a physical version. I'm sure there was a PDF version as well, but I did have the physical version. Of PLO, so I, I remember reading some PDF that was getting shared around, but I don't think it was that one. I think it was the cheaper one. There are like 10,000 different grids and solves and so, so uh, many numbers. <laughs> how does anyone wrap their head around that, man? Hold'em is already just like, and then you, you, four, you double the number of cards, which makes the game tree just like, 64 times more complicated or whatever the compounding effect of that is. I'm not thinking very clearly tonight, but it's, it's very much more complicated than Hold'em and Hold'em is already ridiculous. So I don't, I don't know how anybody studies that. Well, I think that lots of people should be trying to learn new games, right? Yeah. Like, trying to expand and learn. And I think PLO is the second most popular out of all the oh games God. to learn. And I feel like sort of like I missed the boat on it. Like, it would have been great to learn five years ago, 10 years ago, but now I don't know if it's worth my time investment relative to just getting better at MTTs. But I mean, it's, it's a fun game and I definitely enjoy it when I do play it. That's always the trade-off, right? Like I, I had the same thing where I didn't fully invest myself in a PLO. And I think that long-term it would have been more profitable. However, yeah. it's hard to pass up an hourly rate that you know you're earning and hold right. them to dedicate a thousand or 2000 hours into a brand new game where you don't know what your win rate is. You don't know where your skill level is compared to the people you're playing against. Typically it's a lot of unknowns to transition and play a new, new game. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you all, it's always tough to leap into the unknown, you know, value of security, five card draw. I think five card stud previous five card draw, doesn't it? Maybe not. I know five card stud is the game they played in all the old movies. I'm just uh, reading the chat here. You know, five card stud predated five card draw. I always played five card draw in like middle school, but if you if you watch those movies from like the forties and fifties, it's all five card stud, which is just a miserable game. If you think each player gets five cards and you don't get to trade any men, only one of them is face down, it's a terrible game. But I guess it was good enough for the movies back then. Yeah, movies. I've never seen a an accurate poker movie ever. So. Oh, they're all ridiculous. Like if you go, I mean, there there are YouTube videos breaking down the hands from rounders and stuff, but they're betting like fifteen x pot on the river and it's just nonsense, you know. But they had to. Like, I had Brian Koppelman on the show, and when I was researching it, it used to annoy me too. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, man, that'd be a shitty movie scene if, like, KGB and Mike McD just played heads up for 10 hours straight. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you portray the reality of it because it's like way too, yeah, it's not interesting to watch someone play heads up for 10 hours straight. But right. It is funny as a professional to see the. The, the way that hands are portrayed in movies here is like that is not at all what happened, but all right. Which makes me question how all the things are portrayed in movies that I don't know about, that I'm not so immersed in. It's like, oh, the this same is. Effect with the uh, media. So I think Michael Crichton coined this term where it's the, the, the wet streets cause rain effect. We read a story in the newspaper about something you know, 
and you're like, wow, they got everything wrong about this story. I, I know this subject and they're just completely wrong about it. And then you read the, something about some other subject and you just assume that it's true, but like, actually they don't know anything about anything. Yeah. Kind of like they don't know anything about anything. That's a good place to, uh, to call it. Um, <laughs> Brian, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? I am B Paris Poker on all the sites, but the sites that I update the most are Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. So uh, I haven't updated YouTube in a couple of months because they were doing this whole demonetization thing, but we'll get back on there in a little bit. We'll be posting a video of my million win from a couple of weeks ago. What do you mean um, demonetization on YouTube? What, what was the deal with YouTube? Arthur gambling videos, poker videos got taken down. Uh, Jeff Bosky, the ACR pro streamer, YouTube guy, uh, he got a whole bunch of videos demonetized. His whole channel got shut down and deleted because of like gambling violations or something. I don't even know exactly what was going on with it. The Gelman amnesia, like, thank you. But yeah, I'm kind of waiting for that storm to subside. I've heard that uh, Jamie Staples and some of the other prominent guys have talked to YouTube and they've kind of figured it out and it's supposedly not going to happen again going forward. So I might get back on the YouTube tip, but that that is uh, what I was referring to. Yeah, welcome to the poker world, all you YouTubers. <laughs> we're always, we're always the, a foul of the law somehow. Yes, we're like, the, the worst part about this is I hate being in gray areas. I just want to do something legitimate and I don't want to lie. I just want to be on the up and up. And yet and poker has forced me to just fucking embrace all this. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I get the, I get the idea that a lot of the uh, corporate and real world is gray areas as well. So I don't think Yeah. It's made me examine black and white a lot more like what is black and white, right? Like when I get, when I, when I think about it, poker is a great version of a meritocracy. That's probably more pure than the corporate oh, and business business world, right? So yeah, because the people who work the hardest and the people who are the smartest just naturally rise to the top. I mean, there, there's also the element of luck and like when when you got into the game and who you met and who you knew and whether you had this big score and all that stuff. But I think that yeah, it, it is much more of a meritocracy than many fields. As sure. no matter how well you run or how bad you run when you're starting out your career, if you just keep running, you will eventually find success if you're driven, smart, motivated, curious. You can't help but be successful in poker, no matter how many times you get you get pushed down. Completely agree, man. It's been great having you on. I'm gonna yeah, uh, gonna call the show and respond to some of these these Twitch comments who are calling me a copy of RYE. And uh, <laughs> don't worry about my chat, man. They're all they're all trolls in there. Yeah, that's Twitch. That's Twitch for you. (laughs) We love our trolls, though. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.